0: Well, Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you so much for hopping on. Um, Before we uh, hop into some of these questions I've got, could
1: you give us a quick bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. So I'm Matt Clancy. Uh, I teach economics of innovation and just sort of general economics classes at Iowa State University. I work on a couple other projects there too. Before that, I was a uh, I, work, I was a research economist at the Department of Agriculture. That was my first job after my PhD. And I worked on science policy issues. Uh, kind of the big project that I'm working on these days is called New Things Under the Sun. And I got funding from Emergent Ventures. I'm a, technically called like a progress studies fellow. Uh, and that project is a, a, I call it a living literature review of social science research related to innovation. And it's, it's sort of a website, but it started as a newsletter and it's a, it tries to sort of synthesize recent research about innovation to sort of tackle a very narrow, specific claim with a lot of evidence and make it accessible to anyone. So that's that's what I work on. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll talk more about it. But uh, that's that's me, and I live that's, in Iowa. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um,
0: so I, I'm curious. You know, I, you've read a lot of. Uh, I'm assuming you probably read more than just about anybody else on uh, the literature we have about uh, innovation. But, you know, what's your feeling? How good of a grasp do you think uh, humanity has on the subject right now? And um, yeah, like like how how confident are you that uh, that we understand it pretty well? Or do we not understand it well at all?
1: Yeah. So what you said about like I've read a bunch, it's weird because like from my perspective, it's like, you know, it's like I've got like a sliver of it. But <laughs> anyway, because uh, it's just fast. And that's one reason I started the project is it's like, how how is anyone going to keep track of all this? Uh, it's like a fire hose of new stuff that comes out all the time. Um, so anyway, I have read a lot of it. Uh, it's it's one of the perks of this of running that website is that you that's sort of your day job. Um, or at least it's not it's not my full time thing. I do teach and other stuff too. So what do we know? I mean, we know more than people I think appreciate. And know is sort of this provisional scientific sense of the word. Like everything is always contested we're still, this is like social sciences and social sciences have like, uh, I don't know, a rockier reputation in the last 10 years, like with the replication crisis. So I think that we know more than sort of science skeptics who really dig into that replication crisis think, because those are, I think you can identify uh, suites of studies that are mutually reinforcing and like implicit replications and stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is not like the hard sciences. So we don't know how to, Fly to the moon with this stuff. We know how, like, it's better than anecdotes, like, uh, which is what would normally kind of guide policy. But I think uh, it's, it's sort of well short of uh, what the hard, What a lot of the hard sciences have figured out. And actually, like, figuring out why, why that's the case is one of the questions I'm interested in. Like, uh, if, uh, you know, the pathologies of the social sciences are they widespread? And if so, why not? What's special about the social sciences? And I guess more generally, some other, since you asked what questions I'm interested in, like I think I've always been interested in what I call like the micro foundations of innovation. So, what's really going on under the surface when new ideas or new discoveries are made and the processes they come about? Um, and related to that is sort of the future of innovation. Like, is it going to be harder, slower? Uh, and if so, what can we do about it? And then I guess the sort of niche thing is I, I got kind of lucky in my timing on this, but I started to get interested in the impact of remote work and the potential of remote work about a year and a half, or maybe probably about a year before COVID struck. And so I had been digging into that literature and I've written a bit about that too, and especially its impact on innovation.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, I am, I, I'm curious, I, I, I've wondered about the replication crisis. I, I, I've got a lot of questions, um, <laughs> but I'm curious, the replication crisis in psychology you know it starts in psychology first and i've always wondered uh you know is this i have this suspicion that it's it's probably a lot more pervasive than we think but it's just easy to see in like social psychology like you know anyone can read a social psychology paper and think okay and like and like kind of like grok it if that makes sense but mm-hmm. you know maybe as things are, are kind of farther out, farther out in some sense, beyond like, uh, I, I guess, uh, anyone's domain, it, it would be harder to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the, the replication crisis?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, I think the replication crisis, what you say is true, like that it's easier to sort of understand some of these studies that are almost about like our, our day-to-day experience. And we have like, we know what it's like to be people in social environments. We don't know what it's like to be atoms. Right. Uh, but like one thing I always sort of hedge back about the replication crisis is like, you know, the replication crisis is famously like the majority of studies in certain domains don't replicate. Like when they did this experiment where they tried to replicate a hundred of them, I think it was like 70% or something weren't brutal, replicated. Yeah. yeah. But you, there's like a limit on how widespread that can be. Just because if you like look around, we have things like mRNA vaccines, we've got like, like We do have things that work. We have a lot like technology is like a proof of concept that these things are replicated because (laughs) the process is replicated every time someone uses the technology. And I do think that like uh, in the social sciences, there are fields that are better and worse than others. Um, Economics, I am an economist, so like take this with a grain of salt, but I think economics has a reputation for being good at this. Like there's like, it's not just my assertion. And I think it's still not as good as the hard sciences, but like among social sciences, like there's been an experiment where they, not experiment, they've done like uh, betting markets on whether things will replicate. And so, based on people's beliefs about when they read the study, if they think it will replicate, economics does better than others, but still, it's still well short of 100% replicating. Um, And when people have tried to replicate uh, like experiments in economics they've replicated a higher share so like instead of 60 or 70% not replicating it's more like 60 or 70% replicate um and yeah so but that was also a very small study like 18 studies instead of the 100 so gotcha. i don't want to step too far out uh, you know but i do think uh, i so i think it's it's not as bad in in economics and it's uh it's pretty it's reasonably good throughout most of the sciences uh we do know that like, there's a lot of problems within biomedicine. Uh, and we, we know that because people try to build on biomedical research and they're like, this doesn't work. And there's sort of this rule of thumb that you should apply like a 50% this, you know, like only half the things that seem to work in academia will work out, out in the lab. Uh, but at the end of the day, we do push forward based on that underlying research. So that's my, my sense of it. And yeah, like one of the questions I sort of got interested in is like, why is there this variation across different sciences right because they're all scientists or they're all operating in sort of similar incentive schemes to try and publish and get you know grants and stuff like that gotcha do you think that's perhaps
0: because uh, you know each domain and then each subdomain i have this feeling they each have their own kind of unique culture and there's not a ton of cross-pollination is that the case or, or what do you think
1: i don't know it's tough like it would be hard for me to assess if like the culture is very different. The things that I've sort of zeroed in on is, and, and I should say like, this is like comes from surveying and synthesizing what other people think. There's not like original Matt Clancy ideas or anything, but stuff that I found compelling was like one, this back and forth with technology where like science is set up so that you, uh, you're supposed to discover something new and novel And until very recently, there wasn't a lot of incentive to replicate stuff. And replicating is like really expensive to rerun experiments and all that. Um, And the hard sciences sort of have this built-in replication system. Like, you know, if you come up with a biomedical discovery and it's useful, a pharma company will perform replications for you in the form of clinical trials, you know, like, you're uh, trying to
0: translate that.
1: Right. And so I think that the fact that we don't have these close ties to like the implementation of policy is is like a, a handicap the social sciences have. So that's one explanation, and then another one that that I've seen that I like is is about the theoretical framework that different sciences have. So in some domains that are very mature, they've got like a unified theoretical framework that guides inquiry, and so you focus on problems that are really you kind of, uh, you have a really theoretically justified reason to look at that. And you sort of expect, you know what to, you have an expectation about the kinds of things that you'll find that are reasonable. And if you don't find that, it's actually very interesting and surprising. And maybe you have to revise the theory, but a lot of the social sciences have been described as like having a, this problem of, I can't remember what it's like, uh, incompatibility or something. Uh, there's just tons of incompatible theories that oh, are like all micro little theories about this or that rather than these like overarching big picture frameworks that everything sits inside of. And when you have like a hundred little theories that each explain something different, it's really hard to like build on other studies because like the study that's over here is about, uh, you know, one thing and like, you know, how children are affected by their parents' smoking habits or something. And then I have this other paper that's about, you know, something totally different. And I can't really, those two studies can't talk to each other. They're like, based on different theories and right. so, uh but it, that might be a reason why economics is like has some good things cuz economics has some ties to uh the real world application through like it's sort of role in government right uh and uh also economics has like uh, for better or worse a pretty big unified overarching theory like theoretical approach which is like optimization profit maximization this or that so anyway uh that's that's kind of what i've that's what i've looked into and that's sort of my takeaways on that
0: it's like kind of having like a, a bedrock a common framework to look at everything helps unify things
1: right right and so this is an idea that has been articulated by like uh, uh joseph Henrik and uh I think oh Cameron secrets Richter. of our success yes exactly same guy nice. he's written a, he's written a paper about uh this, the importance of these unire- uh, unified frameworks with, uh, I think it was Michael Muthakrishna, I think is his name, but anyway, they, you know, they've got something in science about this problem, but they kind of are advocating for the secret of our success type flavor as that should be the unifying framework that we can build on. <laughs> That's awesome. but yeah. Yeah, Very yeah. interesting. Um,
0: I'll have to check that out. So, so I, I'm curious, you know, where do you fall on the, the kind of secular stagnation? You know, do you, first of all, you know, secular stagnation do you think it's a, it's a real thing that's happening and then second of all um, if it's happening do you think uh, it's because we picked it just all the low-hanging fruit
1: yeah so secular stagnation I think it's like a term that like, is recently famous from Larry Summers and stuff but like yeah. the people that uh, kind of the circles are, do you mean like the sort of technological stagnation yeah like, tech- or like stagnation, the Tyler Cohen like what happened uh, in
0: 1971 kind of thing Right. right yeah
1: so I've always been like more, I've been on the side of like the stagnation skeptics a bit. I actually don't think the data we have is very good for confirming it. And then we have all these other biases that are going to make us like atypical always...
0: present biases. Well, rightly. we
1: just always like, we have this nostalgia bias. Things were always better in the past. Uh, yes. And like, uh, so like when people, and also we have the, we form expectations about the trajectories of technologies based on where they're going. And then if they change directions, Uh, It can be hard to appreciate that. And instead we sort of just think that they're not going, our expectations aren't being met. And so, you know, we expect, we kind of up to the fifties had this expectation that we were heading towards like Star Wars and Star Trek. right? And then we had things like the oil shock and stuff. And we moved, it seems like science moved in this more like, let's figure out how to use energy efficiently or information technology. And so there was all these ideas about what we should have we don't have them we don't have the spaceships we have this other yeah. stuff we don't quite know what to think of it <laughs> so it doesn't sort of count as much and then like if you look at the data of like the big thing people look at is total factor productivity and i think that that has certainly slowed down since like the 70s but then there's like this other idea that it's slowed down a lot more since the year 2000 it's true like that it has slowed down, but I actually don't think it has much to do with technology. There's like a economist who's written a really nice book about just sort of all these other factors that pulled that data series down, and there's not much room for technology left after all that. So I'm sort of a technology stagnation skeptic, but yeah. I also I do also think that the other thing you said about whether we pull the low hanging fruits, I actually do kind of think that that is true. I think that um, it gets harder to innovate, but the sort of reason that I can kind of believe stagnation isn't that isn't really happening, or might not be happening, and and that innovation gets harder is because we just plow way more resources into innovating as our economies grow richer than we did like decades ago. So like we kind of match the challenge by uh, putting more resources into it. Like we constantly spend like between two and three percent of GDP on R and D, but the country's grown bigger. Like that has resulted in like larger and larger absolute resources over time.
0: Right, right. And so it's something like it's uh it's harder, but we got more people working on it. So maybe, yeah. maybe it kind of washes out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's my view roughly. I just think that like it's hard to take a firm stand on the stagnation issue. I think from the '70s, you have a better argument that things have stagnated since like the 2000s. I guess when I like the technology has has stagnated yeah. maybe since the '70s, but like, yeah. Since the 2000s, less clear that it's due to technology instead of other stuff. Gotcha. Well, yeah. I, I, if you don't mind me asking, I, I, um, like, like what 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 other things could do you think contributed? Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. So I'm recapitulating here from memory. Uh, this great book by Dietrich Volreth, uh called uh, "Fully Grown," and so he breaks down the causes of the slowdown in GDP, real GDP growth, since the year 2000. Uh, a big chunk of the slowdown in real GDP has to do with like labor inputs. So, like the number of people who go to college sort of has plateaued out. The number of like right. new people entering the workplace has plateaued out as we like moved the one whole gender into the workplace and stuff. Right. But then that still leaves a bit left. So that's like that's the big change. But that still leaves all the TFP stuff. But when you look into TFP, um, there's a couple things that have changed. One is like different sectors have typically had have typically grown at different rates like their productivity has grown at different rates so services tend to grow at a slower rate productivity and services tends to grow at a slower rate than in manufacturing it's like hard to cut hair more efficiently than- yeah or like i always think of daycare like um what would it mean to like be more productive in daycare because i have kids in daycare like have one person watch more kids right yeah. which is like makes you uncomfortable <laughs> right. until we get really good robots but uh anyway the way that like tfp series is constructed it like l- looks at how much people spend on different sectors and gotcha. then it, it gives those sectors more weight and so volroth argues that basically as we got richer we have basically we're like these tvs are great i don't need to spend as much money on them because i'm very happy with the quality of my tv now yeah uh, and i'm going to spend more money on health education and uh daycare And those are sectors that are growing slower. And so there's, it could be the case that everything is growing at the exact same rate as before, but we're like shifting our spending towards the slower growing sectors, which makes that number slow down. Uh, So that's one example. Another is um, there's been a decrease in geographic mobility, which like people don't move from state to state as much as they used to. Yeah. And that process has traditionally helped the most productive workers get matched to the job that is like most productive for them. So that's like a little drag, but it doesn't have necessarily much to do with technology. It's sort of like, I've seen one paper that argues the reason people aren't moving so much is because we had this frontier that people like, you know, migrated out West and then that effect lingered for another generation because when people grow up uh, like on the west coast. Uh, but they don't have like grandparents and deep roots to that area. They're just more, much more willing to move than uh, people who grew up out in the East where like they've, their family has been a sky on for like a hundred years or whatever like that. Right. So these guys had argued, once you take that into account, like there's not really any puzzle why people aren't moving as much anymore. So anyway, that's, that's really weird and kind of a cool, but it doesn't have much to do with technology. Right. And then uh, a third one has been like, there's a slowdown of the formation of new businesses. Uh, So, that could be because technology is slowing down, and there's not as many new exciting startup ideas. But it could also be that there's sort of more market power dominance, and it has like it's like these institutional, the way our market works, factors. So that's that's my quick overview of of Walruth's, uh major factors. I think that if from memory that that explained the slowdown. And it, it's sort of sort of he doesn't address technology, but basically he's just sort of like, well, we've already kind of explained the slowdown without needing to get to technology. So we'll just say got it. we're done.
0: Makes sense. Makes sense. Super yeah. interesting. Um
1: mm-hmm. so
0: you know, how does one think about uh speeding up technological progress? You know, it it does seem at the very least, you know, we've got a lot more people working on it. You know, maybe we're getting the same output, but you know we we are spending a lot more money. Um yeah. are, are there are there any
1: uh low-hanging fruit there? Are there any
0: low-hanging fruit in, in speeding up technological mm-hmm. uh
1: innovation? Yeah. so I I wrote a, so the, the website, you know, has like all these different articles that each cover different, uh, aspects of the, of like what, we, what I think we know about innovation. So I wrote this piece about like trying to sort of sit on top of those and organize them to say, how do we accelerate technological progress based on all this stuff? And so I think one of the takeaways is that there's just like, it's like, think of this whole pipeline and there's lots of places along this pipeline where we know a little bit and we can sort of push it along. So like my pipeline is like, you need people, uh, you need people who are motivated and looking for solutions to problems. So they're not just sort of complacent and thinking that taking the world as it's given, but they're actively thinking of it as a possibility to go out there and make changes to that world and try to solve problems. Uh, like I think of the longevity people who are like, maybe we should not take it as a given that you just have to figure out how to spend your 80 years. Maybe we can get more. I just years. like, uh, so, so she's shifting the fact that in that
0: case, it's like, just, it's an, It's shifting the psychosocial thing where we all just Mm -hmm. accept that, you know, 80 years, you know, it's like, this the natural thing. Like once you're you're, clearly your time's up when you're 80, so just move on. Right.
1: Uh, So anyway, there's, you got to have people who are kind of interested in finding problems. You've got to, I think they're more efficient at pushing technological progress. If these people are equipped with knowledge about how the world works and what's worked in other cases. Uh, And then they also need resources to go about inventing and they need incentives to, now that the idea of, you know, working on longevity or something is a possibility, they don't take it as a given, but there needs to be an incentive to push them along uh, to do that. And then you've got to figure out once you do that, how to organize your group of people. So that's sort of my pipeline. And like, what do we, What can, each one of those pieces, you can probably do a few things that will like, you know, tick up the its, it's uh, impact a little bit. And then you stack them all up, they compound, and then over time, if you can like boost the rate of you know economic growth by one percent per year, or something over a hundred years, that adds up quite a lot. So, you know, specific concretely, like if you start like way at the beginning, like people more people might be useful, but I actually think we probably have like a lot of people on the planet, and like our binding constraint is maybe more that second one where like how many of those people who are alive today are like in a position to be able to innovate and solve problems and get the resources and knowledge they need. So I, I I looked at some, you know, I've written about studies about entrepreneurship and what makes people decide to become entrepreneurs, uh, and kind of arguing that being exposed to people like yourself, like if you're a woman, a woman, or if you're, uh, you know, a minority, a minority, uh, people like that who are already doing the same thing or un- being entrepreneurs. Uh, and that kind of sends to you a message like, Oh, this is, this is something someone like me could do. So, got it. uh, you know, Ooh. concretely, you know, you could have mentorship programs or something or things to kind of connect, uh, people with, uh, examples or exemplars of, uh, you know, innovation or entrepreneurship. And then equipping these people with knowledge well you've got to like discover things and I think you know you can fund the scientific ecosystem uh, it can be done that can also be improved uh, and I but I think that even as dysfunctional as it is right now it still is like a huge windfall that like we could double the amount we spend on R&;D I think without uh, it being a waste of money uh, like I was just reading about like uh, the scientists account of creating the AstraZeneca vaccine in the UK. And they talk about how, you know, all these money struggles and so on. And, you know, they, they have like a one in three shot of getting any grant. And if we doubled the amount of spending and all we got was the AstraZeneca vaccine, like, or a vaccine like it that worked much quicker or something, because that's, that would have been one thing that would have been, that probably would have already like paid for itself. Like when you think about how much money is lost. Uh, by the pandemic. Um, Third, like, how do you disseminate all this knowledge? Uh, There's studies about like, well, things that are like really obvious work, like libraries or Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) And like, uh, you know, I, I I, like hope modestly think that like, what I'm trying to do is like a model of that too, like disseminating research in a way that is accessible to other people. Um, I actually, and then like resources. So, you know, the government can Instead of funding scientists can also give money to innovative companies. Uh, I've written a bit about like the small business innovation and research grant programs, SBIR programs and yeah they seem to be pretty effective like at like they, they seem to uh, give money to companies that use the money well and then like go on to do innovative things compared to companies that are very close to getting the funding, but just missed the cutoff by one. There's like a pretty big difference in outcomes. And then, uh, where are we here in the funding? Yeah, so incentives. This is one where like economists focus a ton on this, like uh, patents, copyright, and I. I actually think that the incentives are not really a big problem at the moment. Like, uh, if we strengthened further intellectual property rights, I'm skeptical that we would see almost any benefit. And I think we should probably, I I would tend to think like we should move in the other direction of loosening them up so that it's easier for other people to build on ideas and they're not locked up behind IP for so long. There's always exceptions. There are always certain industries where the IP is really important and without it, there wouldn't be as much innovation. Uh, And I think that the fact that there is a group, there are people who really benefit from that is one reason why there's not a general move to reducing them. Cause there's like a very motivated group to lobby for them. Uh, and then as for organization, you know, uh, I think that that's like, that's not an area that I've, I've dug as much into, but I to say that teams are sort of like teams are really important for innovating, uh, much more so like than, nowadays than they were like a hundred years ago. And so figuring out how to coordinate a group of specialists uh, is sort of important for pushing lots of frontier research. So that's my, I don't know, 30,000 foot view. <laughs> that's great. That's great. It's yeah. a lot of, a lot of actual stuff.
0: Any other big takeaways from remote work? Yeah. I, I know you've looked into a little bit even before the pandemic and now it's become mm-hmm. much more widespread. Uh, it does feel to me that there it's a uh, there's, there's been a fairly permanent shift to remote work. I think and like some people will go back, but I think there, there, there is a large chunk of people that um, have gone remote and will stay remote. Is that kind of your feeling Wait, What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I think that it, this is another example where I think social science research was largely validated prior to COVID-19. There had been a handful of well-done academic studies that looked into the productivity of people working remotely and they kept finding, Hey, it seems to be really good. Uh, and so, you know, like people are actually more productive, uh, if they're working in a call center and they're working from home, uh, same thing for patent examiners. It hadn't really been examined though, for like, you know, I don't know, really collaborative kind of projects, but anyway, like the, that experience, and also they found people tended to like remote work, uh, or at least part time. Like maybe not 100 percent remote, but they liked the opportunity to work from home and would be willing to even take pay cuts to to maintain that. And all that seems to be like borne out by this crazy natural experiment of COVID 19. Right. Uh, so I think it's definitely going to stick around. Um, I think the you know the internet has basically just like slowly crept up and made. Right. Working, product, working from home productive, but it took time for the infrastructure to be laid down. And then it took further time for people to get comfortable using it and uh, new tools to be developed that built on that infrastructure. And uh, even before remote work or even before COVID-19, it was like ticking up year after year from very low bases. And there was like 3% of people working remotely, then 4% and 5%. Uh, I think it'll go to like, based on surveys, 20 maybe in the long run like 30% of people working remotely so gotcha. still not the majority of people working from home but a lot more than 5% right um and yeah the another thing that's kind of interesting about remote work is just that i think it's kind of shows the importance of these uh of like learning so firms it's hard to have an experiment where you as a firm try remote work out for a year and sort of see how well it works and then decide if you're going to do it but when everybody was sort of forced to do that, they did learn a lot about how things like, oh, this works better than we thought. And that sort of suggests there might be other practices we're doing that if we, like somebody's out there right now insisting, this is better. I have studies. They show right. that, <laughs> that doing it this way is better and everybody's sort of writing them off. But if we yeah, like forced whatever. to try it for a year. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's interesting. And then other is like the importance of sort of these equilibriums where like, uh, if you don't offer remote work now, you're kind of the, for some sectors, you're the odd person out, and right. so like you have to sort of stick with everybody else uh, and make it work. In terms of its like impact on innovation, I think that academia and others shows that like it's certainly possible to work on projects remotely very successfully. I think though the the kind of tricky points are that academics really did rely on those mechanisms for meeting people like, uh, and a hundred percent, like in a hybrid work environment that might not actually, if like most people go hybrid, I wonder if that will just not be an issue at all. Like people will be in the office enough. They'll be in the downtown enough to meet people. And it's not important that they see each other five days a week. It's just important that they sort of have a rough idea what everybody else is working on and who everybody is and sort of, maybe that will be, maybe it won't be a problem if they're fully remote. Then you start to have to introduce new mechanisms to get people meeting each other. Whether that's like having annual get-togethers or quarterly, you know, work retreats, uh, making the conference circuit a bigger part of the career, uh, or potentially building useful sort of online social networking spaces. So, like, I've had a lot of luck with Twitter. Uh, it suits me, but I don't think it suits everyone. I just saw. Uh, Derek Thompson uh, is a reporter for the Atlantic or writer for the Atlantic. And he called it like social media is like a digital or attention alcohol, where like a lot of people can use alcohol respect responsibly and like it enriches their life. But some people it's very difficult to use responsibly. Anyway, uh, so I think facilitating those meetings is sort of the big challenge. And we don't research can't tell us that much about what works and what doesn't, because we've never been in this situation before. Right.
0: Yeah. I I think that's that's well put. Um, I I, I'm curious. You know, people have this sense that remote work is is somehow like like we're having this meeting virtually, this conversation virtually. (laughs) It's uh that it's inferior to being in person. Um, Do you think that's just a feeling? And and I even if it is just a feeling people have, it could still be completely valid, right? Like they just feel that it's like it works like meetings are somehow less personal or something like that.
1: Then it could still have the same effect. Do you think there, there, there's something real going on there? So I think that in some settings there is something real going on there. Like I think that as good as this conversation is, like it would probably be better opposite or uh, sitting at a well, table. Well, we we would have more fun, but I don't like Tyler Cohen does his conversations with Tyler podcast, and yeah, he had to switch to doing them all remotely. And he's yeah. talked about how like uh uh people in the audience, people who are listening can't tell the difference, but maybe from his perspective, it's not as fun. Okay. So, so that's something. Um, And then there are some studies about certain kinds of meeting tasks haven't been done, don't work as well remotely right now. And that's, I think that's always important to sort of note. This is like, we're taking the sort of conventions that arose in one setting right? and we're now trying to sort of figure out how to make them work in a different setting. And it's not guaranteed that everything will just carry over in the same way. We might have to do things differently, but like people complain about uh, digital white, like the whiteboard meeting yeah. is a lot harder to have digitally or, uh, meetings to set the big agenda for a major project yeah. are harder to do remotely. But once that's set, you can assign everyone their tasks and then remote collaboration works very well. So, uh, one solution to these things is like just identify what you can't do remotely, and that's what you do at the work retreat. Uh, so that's one possibility. Um, the other thing is, when I first started writing about this, I always tried to emphasize it's not really necessary for remote work to be as good as in person for it to take off. It just has to be good enough for its own compensating advantages to make the net trade worth doing. So it would be better maybe if we were around a table, but the reality is that probably wouldn't have happened. I mean, you're not in, you're not in Iowa. I'm not in, are you in North Carolina? Yeah. It would be quite the trip. Yeah. So maybe we would get really lucky, but otherwise like, this is just not happening. And so there's lots of interactions like that. Uh, and there's at a hiring level, like there are people you can't hire because they don't live locally or, uh, you know, I moved back to Iowa to be closer to my family and I'm, I'm here, I'm fixed. If anybody else wants to work with me, they've got to like remotely work with me. Uh, and so that is sort of one example of like, you know, if you can get nine, if it's 90% as good to be working remotely as it is in person, but you can get a person who's 10% better than you can get locally, the two wash out. Definitely.
0: Definitely. I, uh, I think this is long term bad for commercial real estate, but you know it's quite it's quite interesting. So, are, are you down for a round of overrated, underrated?
1: Sure, Cool. Um, so Ames, Iowa, overrated, underrated. Ames, Iowa is where uh, my university is. Um, Good football think, team too this year. Yeah, they just lost though to in state rivals. Rival. <laughs> yeah, so I think Iowa's compared to most people's. Who don't know what Ames is. It's underrated because they don't even know what it is. Yeah. Uh it it has, it's like in an innovative little college town. Uh, it has uh, a little high density of like patents per capita. So you can sort of see this in these little maps of like oh that's cool. That patents per capita. And there's exciting, cool companies there uh that that are born out of the sort of university ecosystem. So I get, I'm gonna do a shout out to Nebulum, which is like a place that vertically farms. Uh, lettuce, and then they like deliver it to your door. So I, Super I get cool. that. But I don't live in Ames myself. I live in the bigger city, Des Moines, which is like 40 miles South. So read into that what you will. I guess. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, Mercatus, overrated, underrated? So I think they're also probably underrated by most people. So you know, the Mercatus Center has this very interesting, I'm mostly thinking of the Emergent Ventures and Fast Grants programs, which I think are like, uh, I don't know, a really cool proof of concept of like a different way to fund things that is really promising. Like, uh, so the Emergent Ventures is what funded my uh, website project. And like their application process is just like a 1500 word essay describing you and your idea. And that's it and they like make fast decisions and there's very little bureaucracy and they get pretty good results and it just sort of suggests like is that should that just be the norm like are we, what are we really gaining from all the other layers and i would i hope to later dig into like see what we know about if those extra layers of vetting and stuff add much value uh and then for covid-19 they they did they, they built on that infrastructure to do something called fast grants, which I guess probably a lot of listeners know about, but it was like super responsive and poured out a, you know, handed out tons of money related to COVID-19 research and compared to the government, which was like standing still. And like, yeah, didn't do anything you know, for months. And like, there was a report that it was like they 5% of NIH funding ended up going to COVID research in 2020. And it took months on average to get the Jesus. money out the door. And, you know, to what to what end i don't know like right right, Right. like yeah like did they really was it really important they not give that money to the wrong person and then that guy waste the money i don't know from a political economy perspective it probably was important from for the agency's survival to right to
0: do it like that yeah but
1: you know it's it was disastrous for the rest of us definitely Do, Mm -hmm.
0: do you think is that something that can scale or is it something where you have to have somebody like uh tyler cowan you know just you know he's like the monarch he's like you know matt you got a great Mm -hmm. idea this is you should someone needs to pursue you know innovation and like look into this and like yes we're going to fund your idea um is that something that scales where you know or is it something that doesn't because you really need you know one kind of absolute monarch who's really good at like making decisions and
1: picking people yeah i think that's i think that's exactly the question um does it, like so? I, I, As I mentioned earlier, I read this book about uh, like uh, vaccine development, and it, it's in the UK. The the UK's FDA, the I can't remember the name of it. They they were a lot more flexible and responsive, and moved quickly in getting the trials for that vaccine set up and running. And this person, the the doctors, I think it's Catherine Green. I don't remember who the other one is. Uh, but they they worked with the U.S. agency too, so they have kind of a nice comparison and. Um, They're trying to sort of be diplomatic, but you do get the sense that the, basically the UK one is smaller in the sense that it's a smaller country. They have more close, they have like personal relationships to some degree with the people funding it. And so I do wonder, like when you have a, a, a big country trying to give out billions and billions of dollars, it might be hard, but I still would like to see a lot of work to really scrutinize, like, do these extra layers of vetting, are they adding anything to it? Because they, the FAST grants, did a survey of people who responded and sort of, they found like really alarming f- uh, findings where people responded. Like if I was able to get all my funding like this, my research agenda would be totally different or, you yeah. know, like yeah. yeah. I,
0: I've wondered if it's some effect where like, you know, everyone starts out with, you know, it's like a small group. It's either a small committee, or it's like just one person giving out the money. And then, you know, one person's a fraudster and misspends the money on a yacht and goes to Aruba and then mm-hmm. that's on the front page of the New York times. And then, you know, you could never do that. Do it like that again.
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think agencies work best. Everything works best when organizations can rely on trust and judgment, but then eventually if you're long, if you're around long enough, somebody's going to somebody, use <laughs> bad judgment. And then the agents, it's pretty tempting to respond by me creating a rule, but then there's just this long run effect of the accretion of these rules. Things get worse and worse. Yeah. Well, um,
0: So on that note, you know, overrated or underrated, government funded science.
1: So I'm gonna say this is correct. Or properly rated. Well, this is roughly properly rated. I think people recognize and I say that because it has it generates enormous value. Like it uh the modern world is built on science that is ultimately funded by these these grants, I think. Uh but I think there's like we're very far from optimum. We're like very, there's lots of scope to improve. At least yeah. that's my rough sense. And so that you know, balancing those two things out, if we could spend a lot more money on uh, government R and D, but we couldn't reform it, I would still certainly say, still yeah, let's do it. Crank. Yeah, and if it was like, can we reform it? I don't. I, I would still probably rather have the money, but I prefer to do both. <laughs> nice. I I like
0: that. And well, and I think people forget also there's some cases where the government uh, uh, government funded science has done really incredible things on short timescales, like the Manhattan, you know, Manhattan project, mm-hmm. like I- incredible amounts of, um, so I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it's a yeah. good point. Um, corporate research labs overrated or underrated?
1: Yeah. So this is an interesting one. I think that this, like for a layperson, the role of corporate research laboratories in the past is, is underrated. Like people don't It's not conventional wisdom how uh, valuable these things were. So there's these economists Ashish Arora, Sharon Belenzone, and uh, and others who've written a lot about this. And they they sort of point out like, look, these guys, scientists at like Bell Labs and stuff, these guys won Nobel prizes for their yeah, you know, like they were really pushing the frontier. And there was this very close uh, connection to technology, which we sort of talked about earlier in the, the thing. So there was like implicit replication. Uh, but because they were in these corporate research labs, uh, they also had the financial resources to like try big things and also like an agency that was coordinating disparate activities like instead of keeping everything siloed, it had to figure out how to get everything to talk to each other and work together. and so they they did amazing things. But I think that's the past and the same economist's work makes me think that actually, like people thinking that if we can just go back to that that will solve a lot of problems like that's an overrated idea uh like they were appropriate for the time they were in but there are like there are reasons why they're not around anymore and one of them is just that like uh it's easier for uh, as the skill level of uh different organizations has has gone up it's easier for them to like Learn from each other and steal each other's ideas, basically. Like, uh, gotcha. Uh, so these these economists have shown that like these guys are citing each other's. Like, if you publish a scientific paper and I'm a scientist at Bell Labs, you know my paper is now a lot more likely to be cited by a rival than in the past. So they're reading what I'm putting out and they're sort of building on ideas. And in a, in a th- another factor is that these major companies are more specialized than they were in the past, and that also makes it harder to fund. Basic science, because basic science is by its nature really unpredictable, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. And if you have like this sprawling giant, where you have a, a division for every kind of product, yeah, it's like very likely that, it, or it's at least sort of likely that at least one of those spinoffs will be useful to one of your departments. But if you're really specialized, uh, a lot of that is just it flows it makes to somebody less else. Less likely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, firms close them down because they just became less profitable over time. And if we can't, like, uh, we can't just wish them to be more profitable. And I don't know, we could, it's, so it's hard to, uh, it's hard to justify, or it's hard to see how they can come back to the same, in the same way they were in the past. There are some special cases like, uh, you know, some AI stuff, especially that sort of has the flavor of those older labs. Uh, But even there, I sort of feel like they, you can kind of see the examples where like, uh, you know, alpha, alpha fold, like the protein folding thing. That's like awesome. But it's, is it going to be like that company's expertise to like use it? And they have to, they'll find a way to license it and stuff. But you can imagine that like, if they were also in the business of like discovering proteins, then that would be like, that would actually be really useful. They'd be like, this is great. Thanks guys. But, (laughs) you know, maybe a little bit less now. Like, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's why I think they're like, you know underrated in the past but maybe overrated going forward gotcha i th- that reminds
0: me of um have you read a uh, scientific freedom by don braven no no i haven't read it so it was recently republished by stripe press um mm-hmm. so we had don on the show and do, do you know don by any chance of don braven i i've
1: heard him discussed on your podcast okay nice <laughs> well um, uh, it,
0: he had this idea where um yeah, he, he ran a he ran a, the labs at uh, BP British Petroleum in the nineties, mm-hmm. um, and he was able to get you know like a, a Nobel Prize out of it uh, for, for one of his scientists and a bunch of really big advancements. And they spent like six million bucks. Mm-hmm. And his whole model was just give people. It's kind of like emergent ventures. Just give people mm-hmm. pretty much no strings attached money, just enough to pursue their project on three mm-hmm. year cycles. Um, do you think something like that could work
1: nowadays? Yeah, I would love to try. I think that like, uh, so I listened to the podcast where uh, I think it was like Jose talked about oh, this. yeah, I Jose, basically, yeah. I, I agree with him that like for some people and some types of projects, that sounds great. Uh, the challenge with all those is like, you have to give the money to the right person right, it's be and right like, person. it can be hard to, you know, I don't know. You need like a relationship. It's hard to scale yeah. that in like an impersonal bureaucracy sense, you know, uh, but there should be somebody doing that. You know, we're trying. Yeah. Super.
0: Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Awesome.
1: Well, um, Matt, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time. Uh, where can people find your work? Where should we send them? Yeah. So the main place is new things under or you can subscribe to the, the newsletter. There's links to that all there. Uh, or, you know, I'm on Twitter at Matt S Clancy. Um, my middle name is Spencer. Uh, and yeah, I have, that's probably a good place to find most of, most of what I'm working on.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. No, thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.